All right, open your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 29, and we're going to look at verse uh, Ezekiel 29 and 30 tonight. And uh, again, the, the two chapters are involved, uh, the announcement of Egypt's fall, Egypt's fall along with her allies. Chapters 29 through 32 predicts the fall of Egypt. Egypt is the seventh on the list of judgments by Ezekiel, again, beginning with chapter 25. And Egypt gets more attention than any of the other nations that Ezekiel addressed. Centuries before, Egypt made the Jewish people suffer greatly as slaves. And even after the division of the Jewish kingdom, the Egyptians were a thorn or an irritant in the flesh to the Jews and a very undependable friend. But the Jews were like their father Abraham and their ancestors. Whenever there was a potential crisis, they were likely to go to Egypt for help rather than God. And the longer the Jews were away from Egypt, the more they glamorized or, or looked back with, you know, when we look back at the good old days, you know, we, a lot of times I think we have parts that are missing there because we, we came to Jesus because those good old days weren't as good as we go back and think about them. You know, as being, and that's what the Jews would do. All oh, the leeks and the garlics that we had, all this, and, and yet, you know, they were enslaved by the Egyptians. King Solomon married an Egyptian princess, and he did a lot of business with Egypt. But after he died, those friendships started to fall apart. Isaiah 31.1 warned during a worldwide crisis, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. Egypt is a type of the world. And a lot of times when we're, we're in a mess or things are going awry, you know, a lot of times we go to the world for help rather than God. And God's giving his people that same warning today about going to Egypt, figuratively speaking, that is the world for help. Because believers who look to the world for help instead of trusting in the Lord, they commit the same sin that the Jews often committed. Chapters 29 through 32 are made up of seven messages that God gave Ezekiel to give to the Egyptians and the Jewish exiles. And the phrase, the word of the Lord came, or a statement like it, starts off each message. Six of these messages are dated. The third is not. But we're able to fit them into the, to, to the order of the book, the chronology of the book. And each of the messages presents a picture or metaphor of the coming judgment of Egypt. The first message was given on January 7, 587 B.C., uh, about seven months before Jerusalem was destroyed. Ezekiel set his face or turned his face toward uh, uh, Pharaoh, uh, Hophra, who ruled Egypt from 589 to 570 B.C. The picture here of, of Pharaoh is, is the killing of a sea monster. And we'll find an important message in this chapter. Egypt was a great nation and it hadn't been destroyed. It had kept its integrity down through the centuries. It was one of the oldest nations in existence. It didn't need help to put up a wall for defense. Because in spite of everything, the desert was a pretty good defense. So there was only one way in, and that was through the Nile River Valley. All Egypt had to do to protect themselves was put up a good defense there. So you'll find that the cities of Egypt didn't have walls because they weren't necessary. So now God says that the Egyptians are going to go into captivity for 40 years. Verses 1 through 16 covers Egypt's sins 
exposed and judged. So let's begin now in chapter 29, verses 1 through 7. And it reads, In the tenth year, in the tenth month, on the twelfth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you, O Pharaoh, king of Egypt, O great monster. Notice they call the Pharaoh again, the king of Egypt, the great monster. O great monster who lies in the midst of his rivers, who has said, My river is my own. I have made it for myself. But I will put hooks in your jaws and cause the fish of your rivers to stick to your scales. I will bring you up out of the midst of your rivers and all the fish in your rivers will stick to your scales. I will leave you in the wilderness to you and all the fish of your rivers. You shall fall on the open field and you shall not be picked up or gathered. I, shall, uh, I have given you as food to the beasts of the field and to the birds of the heavens. Then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord because they have been a staff of reed to the house of Israel. When they took hold of you with the hand, you broke and tore all their shoulders. When they leaned on you, you broke and made all their backs quiver. So in these verses, God takes a very strong stand against the land of Egypt. Egypt had reduced God's people to slavery, making bricks, and had introduced them to idolatry. Egypt had been a thorn in Israel's flesh for years. Yet Israel was constantly going to Egypt for help. This world has been a thorn in the flesh to mankind for years, and yet they are constantly going to this world for help. For some reason, the children of Israel seem to lean on Egypt, just like people today lean on this world to solve all of their problems. Now, God says he's against Egypt, and he's going to destroy Egypt, just like he's going to destroy this world one day, and there's going to be a new Jerusalem, a new heaven come down. Pharaoh is compared to the great monster, it says here. Pharaoh is pictured here as a crocodile that says, my river, notice, my river, and it's referring to the Nile. He says in verse 3, my river is my own. Notice, he says, I have made it myself. Now, Egypt worshipped all kinds of birds, beasts, and bugs, and all kinds of critters. When God struck Egypt with the different plagues, it was sort of an in-your-face insult to the gods that Egypt worshipped by the only true and living God. The plagues were terrible. But at the same time, it was God mocking Egypt's gods. Think of it. Worshipping Heka. That was one of the gods. That was the frog-headed goddess. And, you know, you're, sitting there, you're laying there and you're sleeping and then you, you feel something crawling over your face and all over your bed and, and, you know, and it wakes you up. And there's all these frogs all over the place. I mean, that was just one of the ten plagues. But they're all over the place. And you look around and all you can see is frogs all over the, your room, all over the house, all over the land. I mean, what are you going to do? Do you start killing the frogs? And think of it, those are, those are the, the, the gods, the frogs. Do you kill your goddess? So the Lord must have been cracking up at that, the predicament that they were in. Here's their god, and they're all over the place, and they don't like it. And now what do they do? How do they get rid of them? You know, I love Isaiah chapter 46, 1 through 4. Again, it speaks of the Babylonian gods, or a couple of them. Listen to what it says. Bel, one of the gods. Bel has fallen to the ground. Nebo another one of the gods, is kneeling before me. The Lord says, men put those idols on the backs of animals. They are only heavy burdens that must be carried. They do nothing but make people tired. 
But they all bowed down and fell to the ground. They couldn't escape. They were all carried away like prisoners. Family of Jacob, listen to me. You who are left from the family of Israel, listen. I have carried you since you left your mother's womb. I carried you when you were born, and I will still be carrying you when you are old, when your hair will turn gray, and I will still carry you. I made you, and I will carry you to safety. Yes, I carried you before you were born. I will be your God throughout your lifetime until your hair is white with age. I made you and I will care for you. I will carry you along and save you. Look at that. The gods of the Babylonians, they had to carry their own gods. When it was time to run, they had to gather them up and then stick them on the back of a donkey. They were heavy. They were a heavy load for the donkeys and they had to take them where, you know, they had to carry their donkeys. Our God carries us. What a wonderful thought that is. And he carries us from before the time we were born until we enter the grave. That's the kind of God that we serve. That's the God that can help us in our time of need. As the Babylonians were escaping from then, they had to carry their gods. But their gods went into captivity with them. Their gods became prisoners of war with them. How comforting it is to know that our God cares for us, like I said, before we are born. As the psalmist said in Psalm 139, you knew me in my mother's womb. You knit me together in my mother's womb. You knew every day, my, every day of my life, the psalmist said, was written before I lived out one second of it. God knows all things. And when we get old, and again, it's comfort to know that God cares for us before we were born. When we get old and each moment in between, God assures his people that he will carry them. From the womb to the tomb. The Pharaoh here is Pharaoh Hophra, also called Apres in the Greek. He was the grandson of Pharaoh Necho, who defeated King Josiah of, Mage- of Judah at Megiddo. Josiah was killed also in that battle. Now, Kings Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah all went to Pharaoh Hophra for help when Judah was in trouble, when Judah was attacked. The Egyptian army came up, went through Phoenicia, and forced the Chaldeans or the Babylonians to protect or to provoke the attack of Jerusalem. The prophet Jeremiah announced Pharaoh Hophra's doom in Jeremiah 46, 25, and 26. Listen to what Jeremiah prophesied. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says, Behold, I will bring punishment on Ammon of No and Pharaoh and Egypt with their gods and their kings, Pharaoh and those who trust in him, and I will deliver them into the hand of those who seek their lives, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of his servants. And afterward, it shall be inhabited as in the days of old, says the Lord. You know, you may find it interesting to note that the critic has made an issue of the fact that the prophecy of the destruction of Egypt wasn't fulfilled at this time when Jeremiah gave it. It was fulfilled 17 years later. But here's the thing. If you read the prophecy carefully, you'll see that even uh, though the prophecy was given through Ezekiel at this time, nothing is said about immediate fulfillment. God didn't say when, but he said it will be fulfilled. And you can bet on it. It will be fulfilled. Egypt was destroyed 17 years later, as God said it would be. The Nile River was so important for the life of Egypt that it was treated like a god. But Hophra, Pharaoh Hophra, claimed he was the one who made the river. He said in verse 3 there, he said, and it belonged to me. In this message, Pharaoh was compared to a great monster guarding the waters of the land of the Nile and all of the canals and attacking anybody who dared to challenge his word. 
You see, verses 1 through 5 show us that his sin, his major sin was pride. He was taking credit for what the Lord God had done. Whatever greatness belonged to Egypt was because of the gracious gifts of God and not because of what Pharaoh and his people had done. But the Lord was not impressed by the great monster, King Hophra, or afraid of him. God promised to catch him, put hooks in his jaws, and drag him. And he says the fish sticking to his scales refers to the people of Egypt. He said, well, I'm going I'm to take King Hophra and all the people that, stick, that are with him, I'm going to take them out to the fields where they'll be exposed to the sun and die, according to verse 5. So the imagery here, the pictures of a crocodile being caught, carried out of the water onto the land, and left as dead meat. That's the picture. And they, that is the people of Egypt, would become food for the beasts of the field and for the birds, like, decaying, like, like birds would eat decaying fish. So the Egyptian pharaohs carefully prepared their burial places. But Hophra, notice it says that he'd be buried uh, like an unwanted dead animal. What a humiliating way to bury a man who claimed to be a god. Hophra's second sin was his idolatry to Israel, according to verses 6 through 7. Egypt was like a weak staff that couldn't be trusted. And the Jews should have never turned to Egypt for help. But when they did... The Egyptians should have at least kept their word. But they had a reputation for making promises and not keeping them again, a type of the world. It was Egypt who encouraged Judah to break their agreement with Babylon. And that foolish decision made King Zedekiah, uh, made by King Hezekiah, is what provoked the Babylonians, the Babylonians to attack Jerusalem. And while King Nebuchadnezzar was attacking Jerusalem, the Jews negotiated with Egypt to send their army to deliver Judah. And for a short time, the Babylonians turned, uh, the Babylonians turned away from Jerusalem so they could deal with Egypt. But that plan didn't work. The people in Jerusalem rejoiced that the siege was over, but God warned his people that the army would come back to Jerusalem to finish the, dom, to finish the job. Now in verses 8 through 12, these verses speak of Nebuchadnezzar's invasion. Let's look at verses 8 through 12 now. Therefore, takes us back to what he just said in the previous verses. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Surely I will bring a sword upon you and cut off from you man and beast. And the land of Egypt shall become desolate and waste. Then they will know that I am the Lord, because he said, The river is mine and I have made it. Indeed, therefore, I am against you and against your rivers, and I will make the land of Egypt utterly waste and desolate from Migdal to Cyan, as far as the border of Ethiopia. Neither foot of man shall pass through it, nor foot of beast shall pass through it, and it shall be uninhabited, uninhabited for 40 years. I will make the land of Egypt desolate in the midst of the countries that are desolate, and among the cities that are laid waste. Her cities shall be desolate 40 years, and I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries. So here's a message about the Babylonian army coming to Egypt where they would fulfill God's word and they would destroy man and beast as well as you know, ravage the land. The people would either be killed or scattered and the land would be left totally wasted and desolate according to verse 10. Now the words here in verse 10 where it says from Migdal to Cyan as far as the border of Ethiopia is the Egyptian equivalent uh, of Israel's phrase when they would say from Dan to Beersheba, meaning the whole land from top to bottom or from one end to another. 
So Nebuchadnezzar would make a clean sweep of the land and the misery would last for 40 years, according to verses 11 through 13. Nebuchadnezzar attacked Egypt in 568 through 67 BC and fulfilled that prophecy. Verses 13 through 16 shows God's mercy. Let's look at verses 13 through 16 now. Yet, thus says the Lord God, At the end of 40 years I will gather the Egyptians from the peoples among whom they were scattered. I will bring back the captives of Egypt and cause them to return to the land of Pathros, to the land of their origin, and there they shall be a lowly kingdom. He goes on to say, It shall be the lowliest of kingdoms. It shall never again exalt itself above the nations, for I will diminish them so that they will not rule over the nations, notice, any more. No longer shall it be the confidence of the house of Israel, but will remind them of their iniquity when they turn to follow them. Then they shall know that I am the Lord God. So after 40 years, God says here, I will, number one, I will regather the scattered Egyptians to their land, and I will allow them to set up their kingdom. But secondly, he says, they would never again be the power and glory that they once were. Verse 14 tells us it would become a lowly kingdom. The Jews would learn that Egypt couldn't be trusted, and they wouldn't put their confidence in Egypt. Notice what God says. Here again, they shall know that I am the Lord. This is stated three times in this message in verse 6, verse 9, and 16. And this statement, they shall know that I am the Lord, is one of the key confirmations in the book of Ezekiel, and it's used some 60 times. When God says, hey, you're going to know, you're going to know that I am the Lord. And God will do things and allow things for that, for that purpose. To show, he says, I am the Lord. Whatever man thinks he can do and says he thinks he can do and whatever he tries to do, he says, it's going to fail because I am the Lord. The Lord reveals his attributes through his judgment. See, he shows who he is through the things that he does just as much as through his blessings that he gives us. Sometimes his judgments, you know, and often they get our attention a lot faster than the blessings do. Verses 17 through 21, now we see the wages paid. Verses 17 through 21. And it came to pass in the 27th year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, caused his army to labor strenuously against Tyre. Every head was made bald and every shoulder rubbed raw. Yet neither he nor his army received wages from Tyre for the labor which they expended on it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Surely I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He shall take away her wealth, carry off her spoil, and remove her pillage. And that, and that will be the wages for his army. I have given him the land of Egypt for his labor because they worked for me, says the Lord God. In that day, I will cause the horn of the house of Israel to spring forth, and I will open your mouth to speak in their midst. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. This second message now was given April 26, 571 B.C., which is the, la- the latest date mentioned in Ezekiel. But he included it here because it related to Egypt. And since King Nebuchadnezzar was an instrument that the Lord used, he deserved his pay. But the spoils of war from the conquest of Tyre when they defeated Tyre uh, couldn't start to compensate him for the time and the work that his army put into the siege. 
They spent, because they spent 13 years building ramparts and attacking Tyre, but they couldn't stop the city from using their large navy to transport their treasure somewhere else. Egypt had even helped the people of Tyre in resisting the attack, the attack and relocating their wealth. God decided that Egypt should provide the wages for the Babylonian army that had grown bald and bruised during the siege. You see, God is sovereign over the nations. God can accomplish His will without destroying either their freedom or their accountability to Him. In 568 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar invaded Egypt. He, he you know, marched through the country and he left it desolate. So God punished both Tyre and Egypt and rewarded Babylon. Again, the, the instrument that he used. But what does all of this have to do with God's people Israel? Well, Ezekiel added a word of promise for the Jews here in verse 21, assuring them that there would come a time for them, a time of restoration when he'd give them new strength for their new challenges. Again, in verse 21, it says, the horn of the house of Israel to spring forth. Again, the horn speaking of their strength. So after the Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon in 539 B.C., we see that in Daniel chapter 5, Cyrus gave the order that allowed the Jews to go back to their land and to rebuild their temple. Whatever the other nations might do, God sees to it that his people keep their witness and that they accomplish the work that God gave them to do here on earth. The statement about Ezekiel opening his mouth doesn't refer to um, his enforced, remember when he caused him to be a mute back in, uh, in, well, in chapter 3, 26 and 24, verse 27, because that had been removed when the news arrived in Babylon that Jerusalem had been taken in chapter 33. So that was on January 8th, 585 B.C., but the prophecy in chapter 9 was given on April 26, 571 B.C., which was 14 years later. So the promise is to Ezekiel in verse 21, indicating that when his prophecy came true and the remnant returned to the land, and then they would respect Ezekiel's words and profit from them. See, when it happened, because Ezekiel spoke it, he prophesied it, but it, you know, a lot of people, you know, you, when, you, when you share God's word and you tell them about the, the goodness of God and all the things that, that you know, are prophesied in the scriptures and the things that are going to take place, you know, they, 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 they look at you and, yeah, they, you know, okay, well, yeah, that's, that's what you believe in. But then when it comes to pass, that's when God's going to say, again, show them, now you know that I am the Lord God. And they respected Ezekiel once his words came true. And again, it profited them. It's going to always profit us when we pay attention to God's word and we obey it. As hard as it might be sometimes. You know, again, if, if we couldn't trust God's word then because it didn't come to pass or, uh, again, he doesn't tell it, we wouldn't have a very good God to trust in. But God's word will come to pass. It does come to pass. He's faithful. Not one not one word of his word ever fails the jews in babylon did not take ezekiel's ministry seriously but the day would come when god would prove that he was right in verse 21 he said again to ezekiel i will open your mouth to speak in their midst the day when the day would come your words then will be respected Ezekiel is going to return to the monster theme, the idea of the monster that he just spoke about in chapter 29. He's going to speak about it again in chapter 32. So let's move on now to chapter 30. 
Verses 1 through 19 covers Egypt and their allies being devastated. This third message isn't dated, but was probably delivered about the same time as the last one. What it does is pictures the judgment of Egypt in terms of a great storm that shakes the very foundations of the land. So begin with chapter 30 now, verses 1 through 5, and it's again, it speaks of the storm that's coming. Verses 1 through 5, the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, again saying, son of man, Ezekiel, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord God, wail, woe to the day, for the day is near. Even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, the time of the Gentiles. The sword shall come upon Egypt, and great anguish shall be in Ethiopia. When the slain fall in Egypt, and they take away her wealth, and her foundations are broken down. Ethiopia, Libya, Lydia, all the mingled people, Chub, and the men of the lands who are allied shall fall with them by the sword. The day of the Lord mentioned in verse 3 is a biblical phrase that describes any period of divine judgment, any period of God's judgment, like the judgment of Egypt. It specifically refers to the tribulation period in the last days, when the Lord is going to punish the nations before he returns to the earth to set up his kingdom. Now, whether this judgment is local, like with Egypt, or worldwide, like in the last days, it's the Lord's work. Nobody can stop it. Nobody can control it. It's a day of clouds, he says there in verse 3. It's a day of doom and despair for the Gentiles, that is, the heathen nations. And in the end times, all the nations are going to experience this time of wrath. But in Ezekiel's time, judgment would fall on Egypt and her partners that were close by. Now, this would include Ethiopia, also known as Cush, the upper Nile region. Uh, according to verse 5 and 9, uh, Libya, which is put an African nation, Lydia or Lud, the Arabian nations, Chub or Cub, and we don't know uh, who or where they are. Also, and the people of the covenant land, according to verse 5, who are probably Jews who are serving as mercenaries in the Egyptian army. Verses 6 through 9, it speaks now, it tells of how Egypt will be destroyed. Egypt will be desolate. Verses 6 through 9. Thus says the Lord... Those who uphold Egypt shall fall, and the pride of her power shall come down from Migdal to Cyan. Those within her shall fall by the sword, says the Lord God. They shall be desolate in the midst of the desolate countries, and her cities shall be in the midst of the cities that are laid waste. Then they will know that I am the Lord. When I have set a fire in Egypt and all her helpers are destroyed, on that day messengers shall go forth from me in ships to make the careless Ethiopians afraid and great anguish shall come upon them as on the day of Egypt for indeed it is coming. When the Babylonian sword or army invades the land, not only will Egypt fall, but so will their allies, their, 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 you know, their partners. Those areas were desolate enough before, but now they're going to be even worse as the land is totally de- devastated. God is going to crush Egypt's allies. It says that he's going to start a fire that will destroy the land. The people of Cush will think they're secure. So the Lord's going to send the messengers to wake them up. But it's going to be too late. Verses 10 through 12 speaks of Babylon is the one that's going to do God's work. Babylon is going to be God's instrument in doing this. Verses 10 through 12. 
Thus says the Lord God, I will also make a multitude of Egypt to cease by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He and his people with him, the most terrible of the nations, shall be brought to destroy the land. They shall draw their swords against Egypt and, and fill the land with the slain. I will make the rivers dry and sell the land into the hand of the wicked. I will make the land waste and all that is in it by the hand of aliens. I, the Lord, have spoken. So again, Babylon is going to do God's work. When the Lord punished Egypt during the time of Israel's slavery, he did the work himself. But now he was going to use King Nebuchadnezzar as his appointed instrument to punish the proud Egyptians. And his army would be ruthless. It would be terrible. And it was going to, as it says here, it's going to fill the land with dead bodies. But his judgments would also affect the rivers and make them dry. And that would be a huge catastrophe, a catastrophe for such a dry land as Israel. Verses 13 through 19 now it says, how nothing shall escape God's wrath. Notice verses 13 through 19. Thus says the Lord God, I will also destroy the idols and cause the images to cease from Noth. There shall, be no longer, there shall no longer be princes from the land of Egypt. I will put fear in the land of Egypt. I will make Pathros desolate, set fire to Zoan, and execute judgments in No. I will pour out my fury on Sin, the strength of Egypt. I will cut off the multitude of No and set a fire in Egypt. Sin shall have great pain. No, a No shall be split open, and Noth shall be in distress daily." The young men of Avon and Pi, Beseth, shall fall by the sword, and these cities shall go into captivity. And, and Tehophanes, the day shall also be darkened, when I break the yokes of Egypt there, and her arrogant strength shall cease in her. As for her, a cloud shall cover her, and her daughters shall go into captivity. Thus I will execute judgments on Egypt, and then they shall know that I am the Lord. Nothing is going to escape the wrath of God. Ezekiel has told us here what would happen and how it would happen. And he shows us or tells us the vast range of God's wrath. And notice the I wills of God. The I wills, as God describes his work of judgment, both to lower Egypt and upper Egypt. Instead of a land of pride, Egypt is going to be a land filled with fear. The verbs used here make it clear that the Lord is going to allow the destruction he uses the words like destroy, make desolate, set fire, pour fury, cut off, and the day darkened. The Jews were led out of Egypt by a bright cloud, remember in Exodus? But the Egyptians who once enslaved them are going to be under a dark cloud. And as a result of God's judgment, the power and the pride of Egypt is going to be destroyed. And the nation would never rise to its former glory again. The young men mentioned in verse 17 would be killed. And the daughters of the young maidens, or young women, in verse 18, will be taken into slavery. So the future generation would be given into the hands of the enemy. Nations and individuals never seem to learn that God is serious about what happens to his people in Israel. And in light of what's going on right now, they don't understand. The devastating judgment that God sent to Egypt before the Exodus should have been taught to the Egyptians. Uh, should have taught them a lasting lesson because the Lord always keeps his covenant promises. And it's the same for you and I. And just as it said, nobody will escape God's wrath in Egypt. When the tribulation period comes, the same thing. 
You know, when God began to, to, to again, uh, bring his, his wrath upon those in the, in the last part of the tribulation period, it says that the that people started to cry out, you know, let the mountains fall on us, and they hid in caves, and they, they tried everything that they could do to escape God's wrath. But they're not going to escape it. There's going to be no place to run, no place to hide. You can't hide from God. God knows you know, who we are, where we are at all times. So again, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a warning here, but it's also a warning to the end times when, when, God, when, when the tribulation period comes. Nobody's going to escape the wrath of God. Verses 20 through 26 now speaks of, the, of bones that are broken. Look at verses 20 through 26 now. And it came to pass in the 11th year, in the first month, on the seventh day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And see, it has not been bandaged for healing, nor a splint put on to bind it, to make it strong enough to hold a sword. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Surely I am against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and will break his arms, both the strong one and the one that was broken, and I will make the sword fall out of his hand. I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries. I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon and put my sword in his hand. But I will break Pharaoh's arms and he will groan before him with the groanings of a mortally wounded man. Thus I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon. But the arms of Pharaoh shall fall down and they shall know that I am the Lord when I put my sword in the hand of the king of Babylon and he stretches it out against the land of Egypt. I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. This message was delivered on April 29th, 587 B.C. And it refers to God's crushing of the Egyptian military power. The arm is a symbol of power. But God, it says here, would break both of Pharaoh's arms, meaning he would leave Egypt, uh, Egypt helpless. Nobody... It says nobody applied any splints or even bandaged up the wounds to help the healing. The first breaking took place at Carchemish in 605 B.C. when King Nebuchadnezzar defeated Pharaoh Necho. And it was also at Carchemish that godly King Josiah was killed. The second breaking took place when Pharaoh Hophra tried to help Judah when King Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem in chapter 37, verse 5. So now with both arms broken, Egypt wouldn't be able to use a sword. That would put an end to the battle. Pharaoh Hophra had a second title. This called, he was called the strong-armed. But again, that title wouldn't apply to him anymore. While the Lord was allowing the Babylonians to break the arms of Egypt, that is breaking the power of Egypt, God was also strengthening the arms of the Babylonians. And he put his own sword into the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar. The Egyptians would either be killed or scattered, and their land would be left desolate. And it says again in verses 25 through 26, it's repeated twice, they shall know that I am the Lord. They shall know that I am the Lord. So during Israel's temporary stay in Egypt, Pharaoh wouldn't recognize the Lord. He would just didn't believe in the Lord, God Almighty. But now the nation will learn that the Lord God of the Hebrews was in fact the only true and living God. And that goes for today. Here's the lesson. Don't wait to be broken. 
Don't wait to be destroyed by the Lord. And again, it, will be, it would be your own doing. You know, when, when we reject the Lord and, and, and we don't want anything to do with God, you know, our own lifestyle is what destroys us. See, he warns us. It's not that he comes and destroys us. We destroy ourselves when we reject him. But he warns us ahead of time. He says, choose life, not death. So the lesson, like I said, don't wait to be broken or destroyed by the poor choices that we make. Recognize that he is the true and the living God. And you know what? He wants the best for us. That's why he sent the best, his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross to save us from our sins, to give us eternal life. And to give us, Jesus said, I came not to destroy, but to give life and that life abundantly. Are you living the abundant life today? Father, we thank you so much for your wonderful word, God. Lord, we help us, God, to keep our eyes upon you, Lord, to, to keep our ear to your word, Lord. And Father, to, to, to trust it with all of our heart, soul, and mind, God, to stand upon it. Father, for it is the only thing that is solid in this life, God, your word. Jesus Christ is our anchor. May we be anchored deep in our soul to the Lord Jesus, God. He's the rock that we stand on. He's the steady rock. He's the rock that doesn't move in, in a world that is shaking to pieces, Lord. So, Father, may we just continue to keep our eyes on you, Father. Trust in you, Lord. Walk with you, Father, all the days of our life, God. Father, may we seek you for the forgiveness